The word of the Lord that came to Micah of Moresheth in the days of Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah, kings of Judah, which he saw concerning Samaria and Jerusalem. Hear, you peoples, all of you, pay attention, O earth, and all that is in it. And let the Lord be a witness against you, the Lord from his holy temple. For behold, the Lord is coming out of his place, and he will come down and tread upon the high places of the earth. And the mountains will melt under him, and the valleys will split open like wax before the fire, like waters poured down a steep place. All this is for the transgression of Jacob and for the sins of the house of Israel. What is the transgression of Jacob? Is it not Samaria? And what is the high place of Judah? Is it not Jerusalem? Therefore, I will make Samaria a heap in the open country, a place for planting vineyards, and I will pour down her stones into the valley and uncover her foundations. All her carved images shall be beaten to pieces, all her wages shall be burned with the fire, and all her idols I will lay waste. For from the fee of a prostitute she gathered them, and to the fee of a prostitute they shall return. For this I will lament and wail. I will go stripped and naked. I will make lamentation like the jackals and mourning like the ostriches. For her wound is incurable and it has come to Judah. It has reached to the gate of my people, to Jerusalem. Tell it not in Gath, weep it not at all. In Bethlehem, roll yourselves in the dust. Pass on your way, inhabitants of Shapir, in nakedness and shame. The inhabitants of Zainan do not come out. The lamentation of Beth Ezel shall take away from you its standing place. For the, for the inhabitants of Marath wait anxiously for good, because disaster has come down from the Lord to the gate of Jerusalem. Harness the seeds to the chariots, inhabitants of Lachish. It was the beginning of sin to the daughter of Zion, for in you were found the transgressions of Israel. Therefore, you shall give parting gifts to Morasheth Gath. The houses of Akzib shall be a deceitful thing to the kings of Israel. I will again bring a conqueror to you, inhabitants of Marashah. The glory of Israel shall come to Adullam. Make yourselves bald and cut off your hair for the children of your delight. Make yourselves as bald as the eagle, for they shall go from you to into exile. May God bless the reading of his word. Um, as I mentioned twice already, <laughs> um, Jeff, Minister Jeff will be kicking off our new sermon series. Um, the series is titled Micah. What does the Lord require of you? So let's turn it over to him. So this sermon series was actually not supposed to be on Micah. With each sermon series, Pastor Jeff and I exchange a few emails discussing ideas for what to preach next. Is it going to be a topical series? Are we going to preach through a book of the Bible? And if so, which one? Maybe one of the Gospels or, or maybe one of the historical books. There's a, there's a whole lot of different factors to consider. 
And so in one of my emails, I had sent Pastor Jeff some thoughts and some suggestions. Now, what I typed was Micah for one of the books. What I meant to type was Malachi. By the time I had realized it, Micah had been chosen. Pastor Jeff had graciously done the work of dividing up the whole book and planning out the entire sermon series. And at that point, I couldn't bear to, to just ask him to throw away all that work. But it's okay. I like to think that perhaps it's God's sovereignty working through my stubborn fingers. Because there's a, a lot of things in this book, in this short book, that I think is important for us to hear. And, and some of it also lines up as we enter into the season of Advent in a couple of weeks. And the last time we preached on Micah was 16 years ago, back in 2004. So what do you know about Micah? I mean, uh, aside from the heavily quoted Micah 6-8 verse, to, to do justice, love mercy, and walk humbly with your God. So uh, other than that one verse, what do you know? Or perhaps even how does the one verse that you might know from Micah, how does that fit in with the rest of Micah's message? So if you're at home, you have your Bibles, you can turn with me to Micah chapter 1, verse 1, and we begin there. There's a lot here in just this first verse. So the book of Micah begins like this. The word of the Lord that came to Micah of Moresheth in the days of Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah, kings of Judah, which he saw concerning Samaria and Jerusalem. So Micah is a prophet. He's from the town of Moresheth and he's received a revelation, a word from God. And the first verse tells us the setting of when all of this is happening. During the days of Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah, three different kings of Judah. Now, if you might remember some of your ancient Near Eastern history. Uh, Israel had been split into two kingdoms after King Solomon died. And so you had the northern kingdom, Israel, and the southern kingdom, Judah. Now, fast forward 200 years, it's around 750, 700 BC. These kingdoms, these two different kingdoms have prospered during Micah's day. But with this prosperity comes oppression, comes corruption. The leadership was compromised. You had a lot of spiritual issues and a lot of civil issues as well. And so as these two kingdoms grow in wealth, and in wickedness, the shadow of these uh, growing Assyrian and Babylonian empires loom over the people of God. And so Micah sees the rise of these empires, empires as God's impending and inevitable judgment upon Israel. So the book of Micah is going to oscillate between these words from Micah concerning judgment of God, God's judgment, and God's restoration of his people. So on the one hand, God is the judge who will confront the evil in his people. And that's a necessary thing if they're going to be a light and a blessing to the nations. On the other hand, God is still the loving king who remains faithful to his covenant, who will gather and forgive and restore his people. Now, our passage this morning deals solely with God's judgment. We don't get really any talk about hope. A restoration, we're going to have to sit through 16 verses of God's judgment on the people of God. It's a hard message to hear, but still an important one. So turn with me to, to the next verse, Micah 1, 2. Why, why all this judgment? Why all this devastation? 
obviously because of sin, but more specifically, if we look at verses 2 to 5, we see this, that the Lord will judge our idolatry. The Lord will judge our idolatry. So Michael proclaims in verse 2, Hear you peoples, all of you, pay attention, O earth, and all that is in it. Let the Lord God be a witness against you, the Lord from his holy temple. Micah's giving this double command to, to this call to attention. Hey, listen up. God is taking his people to court. And so the picture that Micah paints for us is of this legal courtroom. God is the judge, he's the prosecution, and he's the witness. And his people are on trial for breaking their covenant with him. God is the star witness. He's the one who sits on that stand and and testifies and says, Yep, I can confirm that these people, my people, have not been faithful. But God is also the judge who descends from his heavenly throne room to bring judgment. So Micah describes that judgment like this. The mountains will melt under him. And the valleys will will split open like wax before the fire, like waters pour down a steep place. And so the imagery is intense. The judgment of God is is no joke. And this word is, is not just a word to Micah's audience. It's a message to one people, yes, but at the same time, it's also a message for all peoples. Because Micah tells the whole earth, to listen up, pay attention, listen closely. This indictment that Micah brings against God's people is tantamount to an an indictment against all people. Because if God chooses to indict and judge his own chosen but sinful people, how how much more do the other nations stand indicted and judged? Micah is a word for all peoples of all times. God is first confronting, though, the evil among his own people, and he's taking them to court. And that specific indictment is idolatry. Verse 5, the Lord will judge our idolatry. And verse 5 gives us the reason. Why is God coming out of his heavenly throne room to judge his people? Why are the mountains melting and the valleys splitting open? He says this, all of this is for the transgression of Jacob and for the sons uh, for the sins of the house of Israel. What is the transgression of Jacob? Is it not Samaria? What is the high place of Judah? Is it not Jerusalem? High places, uh, they were these places of worship, usually at the top of hills. Uh, but they were often used to worship idols. Going there was fundamentally a rejection of God. Now, what Michael points out is that these high places are in Samaria and Jerusalem, the the two capitals of the northern kingdom and the southern kingdom. So it's a picture of idolatry at the very heart of the nation, in the capital, in both capitals of both uh, kingdoms. The nation as a whole is corrupt to its very core. And so God now is coming in judgment upon the nation's idolatry. Verse 7, All her carved images shall be beaten to pieces. All her wages shall be burned with fire. 
All her idols I will lay waste, for from the fee of a prostitute she gathered them, and to the fee of a prostitute they shall return. Now, Mike is talking about prostitution here, but it's a different kind of prostitution. He's talking about the, the temple cult prostitution. The idea was that, you know, for all these false gods and goddesses, the union of these gods and goddesses brought about the fertility for the people's crops. So that was the belief you know, during the spring season. And that union was celebrated and symbolized and affected through people paying for the services of a temple prostitute in order to procure and obtain the favor and blessing from these idols. And as the temple cults collected these fees, what Micah is basically saying is the wealth that Israel had acquired from its idolatry would now be transferred to the invading Assyrian forces who would in turn use that same wealth to further their own immorality to further their own idolatrous worship. For from the fee of a prostitute, she gathered them, Israel gathered them, and to the fee of a prostitute, to the Assyrian Empire, they shall return. It's an ironic judgment as God uses the idolatrous Assyrians to judge the idolatrous Israelites. So God is taking his people to court, and the indictment is idolatry. But but what is that, really? Is it simply the the act of bowing down to a carved image? Is it Israel going to these high places to engage in immorality? I like how the New City Catechism defines it. Idolatry is trusting in created things rather than the creator for our hope and happiness, significance, and security. Idolatry is trusting in created things rather than the creator for our hope and happiness, significance, and security. That's to say that we love, trust, and obey something or someone more than God. Because deep in our hearts, what's going on there, beneath all the behavior and actions and rituals, we believe that this idol, not God, will rescue. We believe that this idol, not God, will give us happiness. It will satisfy the desires of our heart. We believe that this idol, not God, will give us meaning and purpose in life, that it will make us feel valued and secured. Israel was in this covenant relationship with God and God alone, yet they were unfaithful. Because the covenant relationship is not an open relationship. Neither is the covenant relationship being in a throuple with God and something or someone else. And yet oftentimes without God's consent, that's how we treat our relationship with God. Maybe we don't look to replace God entirely, but we effectively remove him from our hearts. Because the throne of our hearts is not a love seat. It's not two seats. It's not a couch. It's definitely not a sectional. There's only one seat. Room for our creator or his creation. Who sits or what sits on the throne of your heart? What are our idols? What are your idols? Probably not carved images. 
probably not ancient fertility rites. There's an article that I like to refer to now and again because I think it's just so revealing and, and convicting with the way it's written, especially when it comes to identifying the, the idols that we trust in for our hope and happiness and significance and security. So let me read it to you. It goes like this. Hello, I am an idol. Don't be afraid, it's just me. I notice you're turned off by my name, Idol. It's okay, I get that a lot. So allow me to rename myself. I'm your family, your bank account, your sex life, the people who accept you, your career, your self-image, your ideal spouse, your law-keeping, I'm whatever you want me to be. I'm what you think about while you drive on the freeway. I'm your anxiety when you lay your head on the pillow. I'm where you turn when you need comfort. I'm what your future cannot live without. When you lose me, you're nothing. When you have me, you're the center of existence. You look up to those who have me. You look down on those who don't. You're controlled by those who offer me. You're furious at those who keep you from me. When I make a suggestion to you, you're compelled. When you cannot gratify me, I consume you. No, I cannot see you or hear you or speak back to you. But that's what you like about me. No, I'm never quite what you think I am, but that's why you keep coming back. And no, I don't love you, but I'm there for you whenever you need me. What am I? I think you know by now. You tell me. What came up in your mind as I read through this? What made you just a little bit uncomfortable as you heard those words? What was the thing that made your heart want to hold on to it a little tighter, even as your head said, no, we're not together? Our passage today is on God's judgment. More specifically, God's judgment of our idolatry. Now notice that this passage, as, as Micah speaks forth God's word, he's not dealing with sin of the Assyrians predominantly, or the Babylonians, he's dealing with the sins of God's own people, not the other peoples or the other nations. Because God must first confront the evil in his people before they can be a blessing to the nations. Because this is how the book of Micah ends. And so we're kind of getting ahead of ourselves a little bit, but it's okay. Micah 7, 18 to 20, the last couple of verses. Who is a God like you? Pardoning iniquity and passing over transgression for the remnant of his inheritance. He does not retain his anger forever because he delights in steadfast love. He will again have compassion on us. He will tread our iniquities underfoot. He will cast all our sins into the depths of the sea. He will show faithfulness to Jacob and steadfast love to Abraham, as you have sworn to our fathers from the days of old. So yes, there is hope. There's restoration. God will keep his promises to Abraham. But first, there's judgment. 
Because how could Israel truly be a light, fulfill their calling, to be a blessing to the nations, pointing other nations to God, if they themselves were pointed in the wrong direction? How often do you clean your home? Once a week? Once a month? How often do you clean the tools you use to clean your home? Every week or so, I clean my apartment, but I also clean my Roomba vacuum, which Gene and I named Jarvis. And that's because over the course of that week, Jarvis's brushes trap a lot of hair. His bin uh, has some leftover gunk, and I think you can see where I'm going with this. Over time, I need to confront the evil in Jarvis, and by evil, I really mean just the hair in the kibble that my dog Clover took out of her bowl and just left uneaten on the ground. I need to clean it out in order that Jarvis can be a blessing to the rest of my apartment, a blessing to me. Likewise, God's word to us through Micah this morning is a warning against the idolatry among God's own people. Whether that is in our own hearts as Christians or in the church as the people of God. What are the golden calves in the church, maybe even our church, that need to be taken down for us to be a blessing to the nations, to be a light to the nations? Now, here's my challenge for us, though. It is incredibly easy to point to the other idols, to the idols of the church, maybe our church, that others hold up not so easy or natural to identify the idols of the church, maybe even our church, that we hold up. And if we neglect the latter, then I think we miss part of the point of this passage. The Lord will judge our idolatry. And as the passage continues, we find that God's judgment is devastating and it dismantles our idols. God's judgment is devastating and it dismantles our idols. Verses 6 to 7 and, and 10 to 15 there, Micah gives this long description of God's judgment. We see Judah and Samaria are devastated and they are dispossessed of their land. They are going to lose that land. They are going to be sent into exile. Verse 6, Samaria goes from having a high place to being a heap. It's like taking a city like New York City or, or Boston and saying God will flatten it. No more skyscrapers, no more buildings, no more subway systems. It will be like an open field ready for planting a vineyard. God's judgment lays bare the reality of these idols, the carved images. They are beaten to pieces. Their wages, the wealth that they worshipped and probably will ultimately lead to their injustices and oppression later on, gone in the fire. And Michael continues on in verses 10 to 15, describing this judgment on various cities. Now, naturally, I think we, we tend to skip over this pretty quickly, right? Because it's a bunch of places with, with hard to pronounce names. And we got the overall picture, right? Judgment, bad things. But these cities are not random. What we find of the course of Israel's history is it, Assyria would come in, end up completely wiping out the northern kingdom, 
And even going into the uh, southern kingdom, capturing 46 cities, including the ones listed here. And as the invading forces came down from the north, they would travel along a route that passed through many of these towns. And Moresheth, where, where Micah is from, is surrounded by these towns. So you can imagine Micah standing there. He's speaking forth God's word. And he's looking around and he's seeing all these different other cities marked by God's judgment. As Micah lays out this judgment, he does so. He uses a lot of Hebrew wordplay, really hard to, to capture in the English translation. But it, it goes to show the ironic nature of the judgment. Now, for some towns, he's going to use a pun. He'll, um, you know, for others, he might play with the, the sound of the town's name or the meaning of the name. So the first town, Bethlehem means house of dust. Micah says, in the house of dust, roll yourselves in the dust. Shafir sounds like the Hebrew word for beauty. But ironically, they will be the ones in nakedness and shame. Zanan means going forth, and yet they will be uh, the ones that will not come out. Beth Etzel is the house of taking away, but they will be the town that has its standing place taken away. Marath sounds like the Hebrew word for bitter, but they will be the ones waiting for good or, or sweetness. Lakish was a city that was known as a military stronghold. But their horses, instead of being used for war chariots, would be used to flee. Akzib is similar to the word for deceptive. So where it was once a city that provided wealth and business for its leaders, God's judgment would turn their prosperity into an illusion. Marisha sounds like a conqueror, but instead they would be the one conquered. Now, even with this explanation, maybe perhaps it's still a list of hard to pronounce names. Might be easier for us to picture this. Imagine Micah standing here in Lexington, where Crossbridge is. He sees the impending and inevitable judgment that will come from God through the invading Assyrian forces in the north as they make their way down. And as he sees this, he sees city after city fall under God's judgment for their idolatry, cities along the path, cities that surround him as he looks up and down 93 and 95 and along Route 2. And this is what he says. Lawrence will be overrun with the lawless. Andover will be handed over. Lowell will be lost. Fires will burn in Woburn. Bedford will be put to sleep. Concord will be conquered. No winds will come in Winchester. The light will go out in Brighton. Watertown will experience drought. And Waltham, nicknamed the Watch City, its time is up. So this is the, the picture that Micah paints for us using this wordplay. Not specifically talking about our cities, but that God's judgment, it's devastating. And it dismantles our idols. God's judgment shows that our idols lead to our demise. Our idols cannot give us what we want or need, and ultimately they, they can't deliver. I recently finished watching a show called The Good Place. Really interesting show that explores ethics and philosophy, not, not always from a Christian point of view, but still very interesting. 
And the show is about a woman named Eleanor Shellstrop who dies and as a reward for living a righteous life, which by the way is not the gospel at all, um, but for living a righteous life, she ends up in the good place, which is basically their name for heaven. Now, in order for me to continue giving this illustration, I'm going to have to spoil the entire show for you. So this is your one and only warning. If you don't want to be spoiled, and I warned you, mute the audio. Now, I'll give you a thumbs up when you can unmute it. Ready? Find that mute button or, or leave the room or take the headphones out of your ears. Okay. So in this show, what we discover is that Eleanor and her new set of friends are not actually in the good place. They're not in heaven. They're in the bad place. They're in hell. It's a ruse. But through a series of circumstances, though, they actually make it into the real good place. And then another twist, only to find that the good place is not so great. You see, heaven in this show is basically a place where you can get and do anything and everything you want. Where all your earthly desires and needs are met. So they get to heaven. They do everything they wish for. Everything that they wish they had done uh, on earth. And then still have all of infinity left. As one of the people in the good place said, this place kills fun and passion and excitement and love. And so one area that I think actually both the Bible and this show agree upon is that these earthly desires are not enough to give you hope and happiness, significance and security. Now where they disagree is their solution to the problem. Eleanor and her friends end up creating a way to end your own life in heaven ironically, because this supposedly makes you appreciate these earthly desires more because they're temporary again. But I think that only goes to show the insufficiency of their idols and the ironic nature of their heaven. Their heaven is basically another earth with premium benefits. Their idols are just their creation. No matter how many perfect milkshakes you drink, no matter how many times you can go see the Eiffel Tower, Tower, it's not enough on its own to give you permanent hope and happiness, significance, and security. All right, thumbs up. The Bible gives us a different answer. Only God is the one who can rescue you. Only God is the one who can satisfy the human heart. Only God is the one who can give you meaning and worth and that which will be permanent, everlasting, not temporary or fleeting. And yet, in light of that, sometimes we still turn to our idols. We buy into the, to the lies that our idols feed us. So Micah's word to us this morning is a wake-up call about the seriousness of this sin. The Lord will judge our idolatry and his judgment is devastating and it dismantles our idols. So here's the last point. God's judgment is a cause for mourning and lamenting. God's judgment is a cause for mourning and lamenting. 
after Micah talks about the judgment on Samaria, and then he talks about the judgment on Jerusalem, with each section, he, he also gives a response. He describes a response of mourning and lamenting. Why? Well, for one, because the judgment is certain. Micah explains in verses 8 to 9 that he will lament and wail because Samaria's wounds is incurable. And guess what? It's arrived. It's come to Judah, to Jerusalem. Samaria's sin in the northern kingdom could not be contained. It had come to Judah. Like COVID spreading from country to country, Samaria's sin of idolatry had so easily spread to Jerusalem, from one kingdom to the next, from one capital to the next. And God's judgment was impending and inevitable. It was certain. God's judgment is a cause for mourning and lamenting, also because the judgment is personal. Micah ends our passage this morning with this verse. Make yourselves bald and cut off your hair for the children of your delight. Make yourselves as bald as the eagle, for they shall go from you into exile. He calls on his people to mourn, to take serious over the consequences of their sin, consequences that end up affecting even their children. And in their act of mourning, they are identifying themselves with their sin of idolatry. And that's something that we need to do as well. To take the time to reflect and name the idols in our hearts and among the people of God. Now, yeah, we believe in the good news that Jesus Christ died on the cross to bear the wrath and judgment of God and to suffer the punishment for our sins. But God's word to us today is a reminder of why that news is good. To recognize the seriousness of our sinful idolatry and the awesomeness of God's judgment. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we give you thanks for your word. Even though at times your word is difficult to hear, judgment is not a happy message, but it is a necessary one. God, help us to identify, name, and realize the idols in our own hearts and in our own church that we need to dismantle, that we need to lay down and give up and turn back to you, Lord. Help us in this by your word and spirit. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.